Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Everyone, welcome to the 114th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So, good afternoon, Matt. Good afternoon, Mark. Um, so, before we get started, um, I apologize for my voice uh, with the cold. It's got a little head cold going on, so apologize, and I'll try to get through it with everybody without uh, coughing or sneezing too much. Um, But before we get started here, as always, we'll run through the performance of the major indexes that we track. And this data is as of the market close on September 7th. And the data is from stockcharts.com. You want me to do it? Sure. I'll give you a little break. I'll give you (laughs) a cold cold break. So listeners, S&P 500 index for the month is down 0.8% for the year, up 20.34%. The Dow Jones Industrial Average for the month is down 0.75%, and for the year, up 14.68. For the NASDAQ Composite for the month, up 0.75, and for the year, up 19.3. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 Index for the month is positive 0.2%, and for the year, up 15.9. The Vanguard International ETF X United States for the month is up 1.65, and for the year, is up 12.5. The three-month T-bill currently yields at 0.05. The two-year Treasury currently sits at 0.22. And the 10-year Treasury yield currently sits at 1.38% mark. Thanks for that. Appreciate the break. Yes. Um, Big news and headlines, uh, current events from the week. Uh, The TSA screened nearly 1.35 million people on Tuesday, August 31st, the fewest since May 11th, and travel demand usually... Drops in the late summer as children return to school, people get back from their vacations, but airline execs are already previewing that uh, this upcoming earnings season uh, could be a little rocky, missing top line and bottom line revenue and earnings estimates. Yeah, I'm not surprised by this, Mark. I think you're going to see travel light as people go uh, back to school. Business travel is nowhere near recovered, obviously. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's any surprise, and hopefully it gives these airlines a break to kind of catch up um, training, maintenance, hiring, all that stuff. Yeah, agreed. Uh, next is an update on employment data from August. The report showed that the U.S. economy added just 235,000 jobs last month, which was well short of the 720,000 that were expected. And the unemployment rate fell from 5.4% to 5.2%. Um, The big uh, additions to the job uh, market have been professional and business services, transportation and warehousing, manufacturing. So I like to see that number positive just so uh, hopefully we can get out of this um, chip shortage (laughs) uh, in terms of especially semiconductors right now. Yeah, and I've seen a lot of studies in the past, and I'm not sure how up to date they are, but I've seen statistics with manufacturing that for every one job that's created in manufacturing has a follow through of two and a half jobs throughout the economy. I've seen statistics and in, in, in studies relating to that. Yeah. And there was 37,000 new manufacturing jobs created. 
And I think one of the highlights of the employment report, which is not discussed, is we continue to see gains in, gains in average hourly earnings. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that goes in the consumer's pocket, increases their ability to spend. And I think that is something that also is underappreciated. Yeah, very much so. Um, two other points on employment, uh, according to compound advisors, there are now 1.7 million more job openings than unemployed people in America. And that's a new record and 17 million jobs have been added back since the pandemic shutdowns last year. 1.7 million more job openings. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kind of a crazy number, isn't it? Yep. Uh, last but not least, the remnants of Hurricane Ida caused massive flooding, especially in New York and New Jersey last week. And I'm sure everyone has seen the horrible videos and pictures from that fallout. Um, New Orleans is still trying to pick up the pieces as well. Um, so there's going to be a lot of pending insurance claims and more demand for building products as people rebuild. So that, with conjunction with this infrastructure spending bill, uh, wouldn't surprise me if people uh, demand for raw materials and the services of these companies that, you know, rebuild these areas uh, skyrockets here. Got to follow the tea leaves. And it's, I think it's something that's very important. I mean, we've been struck with a lot of natural disasters the last several years. And, you know, it should provide a tailwind for demand in those areas. Yeah, it should. It should. Um, so I'll have you start with a supply chain update for tweets, articles and research from the week. Thank you, sir. So I have a uh, op-ed article that caught my eye on CNBC, and the title of the article, Mark, was Supply Chain Delays Will Not Be Easily Fixed and Trouble Will Continue in the Next Year. I saw that. I clicked. Okay? So this article was published on September 1st. It was written by Daniel Jurgen and Peter Tershwell. Daniel's the vice chairman of IHS Market, and he's the author of the new map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. And Peter is the vice president of Maritime and Trade at IHS Market. Um, and so I'll dig in a little bit. Uh, this is exactly what they say. Quote, our analysis at IHS Market of shipping, port, and manufacturing data finds that the worsening delays will continue well into 2022. Moreover, pessimism is growing among shipping executives, some now expecting the disruption to continue even into 2023. Until recently, consumers never needed to give a single thought as to how products they buy actually got to them. No longer. The spreading disruption of supply chain explains why online purchases are taking longer to arrive, why there's vacant space on store shelves, and why furniture you ordered is taking months instead of weeks to arrive. Yeah, and not to interrupt you, but I think it's just important to point out that we really do take this stuff for granted, don't we? You know, oh, yeah. With two-day shipping from Amazon and ordering things, having it shipped directly to your house or having shelves being stocked at the stores. You know, we think that just magically happens and that's going to be how it is for the rest of our lives. And when you have impacts like we have right now in our economy, that strains the system. And when you don't have people working in those manufacturing jobs and, you know, everything else going on in the world, it's going to start to show when the consumer can't get whatever item they want, you know, as soon as possible. And, you know, furniture is a great example of this. I'm hearing people that are in some cases 10 or 11 months out on couches and chairs, right? That was mm -hmm. never a concern before COVID. So it's just one of those things that I think, you know, a lot of the corporations that are in these types of industries don't get enough credit of how efficient uh, and how easy they make it for 
American consumers, right? Absolutely. I mean, the past couple of decades, they've been trying to perfect just-in-time logistics. And it's just a fancy term for these companies don't want inventory until they absolutely need it, whether to manufacture something or to sell it to the end customer. And the minute you have a cog in the system, guess what? I think people are going to start reevaluating this just-in-time logistics. Look at the car manufacturers. You know, you have so many parts go into a singular car, and Mark, all it takes is two or three parts that you can't get, and that car is sitting on a lot, and you can't sell it. Yeah. And I think a lot of these companies are going to start looking at their supply chains and thinking, okay, how can we take more control over this? Yeah, and we uh, we went down to Tennessee earlier this summer, and one of the guys we went with is in the manufacturing industry, and we went by um, a lot that had just all like Ford trucks, and he said, if you guys look at that, all those trucks are brand new. They're just waiting for semiconductor chips to get put in the truck so they can sell them. It was you know, just, and there were thousands of them. It's funny you say that. I um, This conversation came up with a specific client, and I said something similar. And you know what he told me? What they do is when they those, those chips are, are in such short demand that when they drive them out to where they store them, they take the chip out of one and put it in another to drive it where it needs <laughs> yeah. to go. They take the chip out of that one. It's crazy. Think about that. Yeah. So I think we do we do take that stuff for granted. And I understand that, you know, over the past couple of years, people are pushing for corporate governance and that type of thing. And I get that. It's all good stuff. But I don't think people realize what goes into making buying products seamless for consumers. Yes. And it takes a lot. Yes. And, you know, I got a couple more points of quotes um, uh, from this specific op-ed. And at the end, Mark, the listeners are going to kind of understand as I kind of connect the dots why I think this is relatable, right? Because mm -hmm. this is an important topic. Yeah. So I'll continue. And this is all great stuff, Mark. This disruption is one of the main reasons for the surge in inflation. IHS Market's latest PMI survey of global manufacturing finds that the delays in delivery times are the most severe ever on record, going back a quarter of a century. This is unprecedented situation is causing prices to rise at one of the fastest rates in a decade. The whole global system is choked in the face of what seems to be um, um, I'm sorry, let me start over. The whole global system is choked in the face of what the head of the port of Los Angeles, Gene Sorka, says is unrelenting consumer demand. Warehouses in China on the West Coast have run out of space. Shipping companies and ports are not equipped to deal with the flood of containers. The situation was made far more difficult by the shortage of workers because of COVID. That is when the ports began to clog up. Fully loaded container ships are being forced to wait off the berth space at anchorages off the largest ports in the U.S., including L.A. Long Beach, as well as several other ports in North America, Asia, and Europe. Forty-nine container ships lay idle off of L.A. Long Beach as of August 29th, the most ever mark, and up just nine from June 18th. COVID and the economic rebound have caused the system to choke up. All players along the global supply chains are scrambling to find solutions short term and build greater resilience into supply chains for the long run. The systems will eventually come back into balance. In the meantime, the economic consequences will be measured in prices and in inflation and in those delays while you wait for your packages to arrive. Now, I'll try to bring this all together full circle. What are my takeaways as I read this that I'd like to share with you and the listeners, Mark? One Another indicator, the American consumer is strong. There is lack of goods. Prices are high. Consumers don't care for the most part. Second point, price inflation could remain longer 
than anticipated. We need to acknowledge that. Third point, demand for workers is off the charts. And I think that's going to be seen in higher wages, which they're going to pass along to the consumer. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And just I think it's good. I think the the focus to take out of this is that, you know, people just learning to understand what the supply and demand function is in the economy, whereas, you know, us as Americans, we're consumers, so we don't want to give up the goods and services that we're consuming. But when there's not enough of those to go around, the price has to go higher. And then we as Americans are willing to pay a higher price for the same goods and services because it's in such high demand and there's not enough of it to keep up with the demand, right? Yep. So if you think about this from start to end, you have a barge of goods in China that people want over here in the United States. So China's like, hmm, so you really want these goods, huh? How much are you willing to pay for us to get this barge over there? That's right. So then they pay up to get the barge over here. Then the companies pay up to quickly sh- get the products shipped to their facilities to get their store shocked or their shelves stocked so that other companies don't beat them to it. And then all those costs get passed on to the consumer because everyone is dealing with higher costs. It's not just the consumer that's dealing with it. It's everyone down the si- the supply chain that's dealing with it. So yep. it's not like they're doing it to say, you know, screw you to the consumer. I'm taking it's, advantage of the situation. It's for them to stay operational. They and make need a money. to raise the cost. Yeah, I mean, you got to think about it. What it costs to use the port, the truckers that take it from the port to inside mainland, all that stuff is up drastically, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yep. So I just want to throw that out there. And, you know, as a takeaway, as an investor, you got to be thinking about, you know, who is making goods that don't have as much as, of a su- supply constraint, who has purchasing power, who has pricing power. There's a lot of decisions that when you're looking at potential stocks, and that's why I thought it would be a good one to highlight and really for listeners to hear. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I have a warning this week. My warning this week is in regards to a topic called inverse ETFs. Now, this was originally sparked because I saw a tweet by uh, one of our favorites, uh, Charlie Bellello. And that, did I pronounce his last name correctly? I think you did. Nice job. Thank you. On August 27th. Now, before I discuss Charlie's tweet, Mark, can you explain to listeners what is an inverse ETF? Yeah, I think the easiest way to explain it is so you have, you know, index funds um, or exchange traded funds that track the S&P 500 index, right? Um, the inverse S&P 500 exchange traded fund is just that it does the opposite of what the S&P 500 does. And I think it's dangerous for people to hold these long term, because as you're going to point out here, markets go up over time right? This is not something that you buy and you hold in a portfolio because the returns have been so horrible. Um, you know, and, and then on top of it, you can get leveraged. So you can get like a three times leveraged uh, inverse S&P 500 fund that, you know, if the S&P 500 is going up 5%, then you're down 15 because it's three times leveraged. So you just have to be really careful getting into these. And I know you're going to talk about it. Yeah, because... You know, um, I'll go over my warning here in a second because this is a biggie. Um, So the example that Charlie uses in his tweet uses three times the short or the downside of the NASDAQ 100 index ETF. Okay, again, which means the ETF utilizes options to enhance the downside leverage by three times or 300 percent extreme leverage. Okay, 
This is Charlie's tweet. He shows the annualized returns of the NASDAQ 100 ETF that is three times short, and he shows it from 2010 each year to now. And do you want to guess what the best return was? In 2018, it was down 21%. That was the best return. The worst was last year in 2020, it was down 86%. And total return since inception, 99.99%. Okay? So the reason I wanted to highlight this is, these are the types of investment vehicles that should not be used by retail investors, in my opinion. And even listeners, most professionals who use them statistically lose money as well. They are highly volatile, and using them, in my opinion, is the equivalent of extreme speculation. Whether it's an inverse ETF or something that is leveraged listeners, please be careful when you do your homework. My last comment is, when you're buying stuff like this, someone might be thinking, why would someone do this? Someone is trying to get two things right. They're trying to time exactly where the market's at, and they're trying to time exactly when to make that purchase and sale. And I'm telling you, it is drastically hard, especially in small windows and time periods of the market. Listeners, you don't want to be messing with this stuff. Yeah, and I think it's important to point out is that, you know, professionals who are using this type of fund, I could, you know, almost use the G word, the guarantee word, but I'm not going to say that. But I'm very positive that this is not something that they just buy and hold in their portfolio. They have a strategy that implements this when they have, you know, when their system tells them to, essentially. And they hold it for days or hours. Right. Short term, very short term. So it's not something that you, you know, buy and hold in your portfolio and say, hey, you know, this thing is going to cash in when the market collapses. But if the market doesn't collapse for 10 years or five years or even two years, you're going to get smashed. Yep. That's one. It's a word of warning. All right. So my next update for listeners is in regards to corporate cash levels. Again, this is another strong data point that I think is not getting enough credit in the news right now, Mark. So this is a tweet from Sarah Ponzik. She's a senior wealth strategist at UBS, and she tweeted this on August 16th. She tweeted, Corporations still aren't spending down all that cash with cash and short-term investments on balance sheets at a record $6.84 trillion, according to S&P Global. Now, we do have this chart on our show notes along with the rest of our show notes. Mark, will you share with listeners how they can access that? Yeah, it's just our social media. So on Twitter, at Jessup Wealth, and on Facebook and LinkedIn, uh, Jessup Wealth Management. So the reason I'm highlighting this, listeners, is if you go back, this chart you will see on our show notes will indicate that companies that are publicly traded in the U.S. back in 2015 had about $4 trillion of cash on the balance sheet. When COVID initially hit, that was around $5.5 billion. We are now up to almost $7 trillion in cash. Why am I highlighting this? I think as we get into a period where it's pretty clear in my opinion that COVID lockdowns are not going to happen anytime soon. Anything's possible, Mm -hmm. but I just don't see that as a, as a, as a highly likely in the near term. I think companies are in a good position to use this cash. Now, how are they going to do it? Mark, in my opinion, you could see dividend increases. You could see stock buybacks. You can see them make capital investments, hire employees, buy other companies, pay off debt, All these things, in my opinion, are generally positive to enhance shareholder value. 
So again, I think this could have a tailwind for the next couple of years. And again, this is one factor I don't think is getting enough attention on Wall Street. Yeah. And I think it makes it easy for people to relate to their own personal balance sheets, right? Because as we talked about that, the um, the savings rate, the consumer savings rate it remains elevated, meaning that more people have more cash. Um, you know, companies obviously have an obligation to increase shareholder value. So the way to do that with their excess cash is to buy back stock and to pay dividends, pay special dividends, make acquisitions down the line. Whereas if you're just a person and you're trying to get your household finances in order, obviously, if you have more cash, you can pay down the mortgage, you can pay off student loans, you can make home improvements to increase the value of your house, make investment decisions, you can make investment decisions. So just naturally, when you have more cash, you're, you're in a better financial position, right? Yep. And so I just wanted to highlight that not getting enough press. Last thing I have for listeners this week is um, some interesting stats regarding millennials. I think millennials in general tend to get a bad rap. I don't know why. They do. I just I, get a feeling th- uh, that they do. I hate how everyone like just classifies people based on their generation. You know? Yeah, I don't like that. Yeah, millennials do get a bad rap. They do. We so do. I'm going to provide some positive. Are you technically a millennial? I am on the edge. I got to look this up. Remind me next week's podcast. Jenna, you want to look this up? Are you an X? So I'm right in between, and they call us Xennials, I think, mm. where we grew up analog, but then we were young enough to have some digital in the in the tail end of our, like, teens. Interesting. Uh, let's look this up, Jenna. I think I'm technically called, uh, I'm a Xennial. Look it up. <laughs> it's a thing, actually. Okay? You're not just making up the word. I'm not making it up, Xennial. I promise. It, it's... You know, listeners are going to Google this and email me now. (laughs) All right. So this is uh, what I wanted to bring up. I read an article, Mark, on wealthmanagement.com published on August 26th. In the next two years, according to this article, even more millennials will be turning to advisors, according to a new survey by Broadridge. In the study of 1,000 U.S. investors, the financial services firm found out that 39% of millennials are not currently using a financial advisor. The majority, 65%, plan to begin using one in the next two years. The demographic is more comfortable with investing than the total population, with 65% of millennials uh, using self-directed brokerage accounts compared with 52% of all investors surveyed. Of those surveyed who plan to turn to financial advisors, over half, or 53%, are concerned they won't hit their financial goals. Another highly rated reason, 43% for working with an advisor, is to reduce financial stress. I find the results encouraging, Mark. If this demographic can put in place a solid financial plan and consistently follow it, statistically, they should have a solid retirement. Mark, your thoughts? Yeah, I think this is um, this is good. And I think that there's a misconception out there that you have to have all this wealth to have a financial advisor or work with a money manager. And that's just simply not the case. There's a lot of firms out there that do fee for planning business. Yep. You just have to seek them out. Yeah. Um, so even if you don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars, you can still work with an advisor to put a plan in place. That of, you could follow on your own. Yeah, exactly. Of how you're going to pay down your student debt, what you're going to start contributing to your 401k what you're going to put in your emergency savings fund. Should I do pre-tax 401k or Roth 401k? I need to get my estate planning documents in order. How do I do that? Where do I even go to begin doing that? 
And it's just using... I have, kid, I have a family. How much life insurance do I need? How yeah, long do I need it, it for? It's just like any other service that we use is this, you're just leaning on a professional that has experience doing this um, to help you with what you need. And this is a need, in my opinion, for everybody. Yeah. So um, encouraged by that as well. I thought I just wanted to highlight that. It was really encouraging for me to read that. I'm going to start with an article from LPL Research on August 31st. Um, they started off by saying, although this bull market has laughed at nearly all the worry signs in 2021, let's not forget that September is historically the worst month of the year for stocks. And this was explained by Ryan Dietrich from LPL. Even last year, in the face of a huge rally off the March 2020 lows, we saw a nearly 10% correction in the middle of September. S&P 500 hasn't had so much as a 5% correction since last October, and with stocks up more than 100% since March 2020, investors should be open to some potential seasonal weakness. The good news is we remain in the camp that stocks will continue to go higher and investors should use any weakness as an opportunity to add to core equity holdings. So I just thought this was an interesting piece because, yes, historically, if you look back over the years since inception of the stock markets, September has been the worst month. Um, pair that with we haven't had a five plus percent sell off in the S&P 500. <clears throat> it's a very real thing that could happen sometime this month. But that doesn't mean it needs to happen. So, you know, I agree with them. I think we're, we're in a bullish environment for stocks right now, especially just with interest rates as low as they are. There's still no competition for stocks, in my opinion. And again, I just wanted to throw this out there that it's possible that this could be the month that we get it. But you have to realize just because it's the worst, worst month in the history of the S&P 500, it could possibly still turn out to be the best month of the year. We don't know. Yeah, I mean, again, I go back to this, and you've said this in different times as well. When everyone's calling for something, what tends to happen, Mark? The opposite. The opposite. And there's a lot of people clamoring, trying to call a short-term top. And they're, you know, they're, they're trying to get the headlines and look back and say, I was right. I called it on September 7th or whatever the date might be, right? Mm -hmm. And I think ultimately, that's a dangerous game. And I think a lot of the underlying data, and we highlighted on this podcast so often, a lot of the data is encouraging right now. Mm -hmm. I just want to throw that out there. And so it's no surprise why we haven't had a 5% correction. Right, exactly. So I just wanted to throw that out there that, you know, we could possibly see some more volatility. Yeah, it's just not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. When, exactly. Uh, also, another tweet from Ryan Dietrich uh, back on August 5th. He said, how confused are you? In the past 24 hours, we saw Citigroup downgrade equities due to rates. Okay. This morning, we saw Goldman increase their S&P 500 forecast due to rates. <laughs> <laughs> so I just thought this gave me a good chuckle because, again, if you're a long-term investor, this stuff means absolutely nothing to you. And by the end of the year, again, I'm going to use the almost G word, I'm pretty sure that none of these estimates are going to be accurate. They're not going to be right. And it just goes to show you how hard it is to try to predict where things are going to go or what's going to happen. So these are just the type of headlines that you just need to look at and throw it right out of your head because it means nothing to you. I absolutely agree. I mean, I chuckle when I see these things. Um, some of my favorite uh, things I like to take screenshots of is back in the absolute worst days of the COVID sell-off in February and March of 2020. 
I got all the headlines, the doom and gloom headlines. This is going to perpetuate. This is going to last for a long time. All these headlines. And then I started taking the snapshots from when it had a V-shaped recovery in April and May. And you should see the this complete opposite. And this is one of the biggest factors that investors fall into. The emotional trap of letting emotions dictate an investment decision. And I think that's dangerous. Yeah, it's very dangerous. So I thought that was uh, an interesting one. Uh, last thing I had was a article written by Ben Carlson titled, There's No Such Thing as a Normal Market Environment. And I saw this headline and it made me think back to our podcast early in the year with JC Peretz. And I remember <clears throat> I was like, you know, so what do you what do you think about this this crazy market we have right now? And he stopped and he was like, what's what's crazy about it? The markets are never normal. There's always something crazy going on. It's just when you're in the heat of the moment, it seems crazier than the last thing that happened. You know, the one thing that really gets to me is when people start to use the term new normal. It's starting to get to me. Yeah, we're never in a normal environment. New normal. What's so, the new normal? So I had to read it when I opened it. The new so, normal changes every month. It does. It does. So he starts off by saying, it seems like once every six months or so, something happens in the market that has never happened before. True. There, there's a reason for this. Life is messy and unpredictable, and so are markets. There is no magical equilibrium that markets reset to over time. There is no such thing as n a normal market environment. It's important to remember that there's no such thing as a normal market. There is no equilibrium when it comes to stock prices, interest rates, inflations, or valuations. This, or excuse me, these variables are always in a constant state of flux, assuming they will magically go back to their long-term averages, and this could be a very dangerous exercise. So going back to it, we talk about this all the time. Stock returns are lumpy. They don't just do 7% or 9% or whatever average you want to use like the historical averages have been. Each and every year consistently with no downside volatility. Exactly. Um, so he gives an example here of a breakdown of the 10-year treasury yields by different ranges going back to 1928. He says, many investors assume rates should naturally reside in somewhere in the 3 to 5% range, but we've only seen rates in that range less than 29% of the time since 1928. Rates are all over the place. So they spent their time 2 to 4% is 46% of the time. 6 to 8% is 16% of the time. 4 to 6% is 19% of the time. So it's always going to be changing. Um, he continues on and says, and although the current rate environment ranks well below the long-term averages, the 10-year has been below 2%, nearly one-fifth of all months since the year 2000. It's certainly possible that rates will surge higher in the coming years, but investors have to at least consider the possibility we are in a new regime of lower rates for a longer period of time, which I tend to believe. Um, so he goes on and he does this, you know, this um, calculation with a couple different things. Um, he talks about, you know, the U.S. stock market valuations and uses the CAPE ratio, which is the capital asset um, price to earnings ratio, I think, um, it's by Robert Schiller. People call it the Schiller Index. Um, and he shows how, you know, valuations have increased over time. So the average uh, CAPE ratio in since 1928 was 18 and a half. Since 1980, it was 22.6. And since 1995, it's 27.5. So, you know, when people talk about valuations, they don't consider anything else. They don't consider inflation. They don't consider 
um, technological innovation with these. Technology wasn't what it is today back in 1980 or 1960. So why are you applying so the there same has to be to an it? adjust there has to be an adjustment to it. You can't just throw this valuation metric on the page and say, oh, it's the highest it's been ever. I'm the stock this. market has to crash. That's just okay, inevitably, yeah, the stock market's gonna take a fall sometime. More than twenty percent. <laughs> Good bless, bless you. You. <laughs> you just I couldn't help that. You just pulled did you see I think it was three years ago, a guy got drafted by like the Dolphins or something, and he was doing his like press interview, uh, like introduction with the Dolphins, and he sneezed and he was like, Oh, God bless me. <laughs> and <laughs> I he, remember and that. He just did the same thing. Did I really? <laughs> yeah. oh, it's natural. You were on a good rant there. I apologize for that. No, you're fine. But 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 no, I just I don't think that you can take this one metric and say, oh, you know, doom and gloom, because it's just not true. It's not. Nothing else is priced into this other than the fact that this same metric that's been calculated the same way since 1928 is at all time highs. It's the same people that sit there and try to apply purely a PE ratio valuation metric to any stock or the market, which was popular in the 90s and trying to apply it now as the sole decision making process. Yeah, you can't you can't do that. Now, there's two points I want to make of what you just said, and these are big. The first one has to do with the Fed. Prior to the great financial crisis of 07 to 08, the Fed primarily controlled monetary policy by just one factor, raising and lowering interest rates. That was the lever. And we got to remember, listeners, that post-financial crisis, there are so many more ways that the Fed controls monetary policy. We're talking about things like printing of money, quantitative easing, bond buying programs, in periods of short-term stress of liquidity, they have TARP, which is a liquidity program window for banks. It's completely different. It's not apples to apples. And we can't assimilate that the Fed is working with a one-trick silver bullet pony. It's not like that anymore. Right. The second factor that comes into play is all the analogies I keep seeing in regards to large cap tech. I keep seeing it about the tech bubble and where these tech stocks are at now. There are different technology stocks out there, ones that have an immense amount of cash in the balance sheet, solid balance sheets that make money, and there are names out there that don't. And putting all them in one camp and labeling all them the same is not fair or accurate. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, then he goes, this is the best one, is the U.S. stock market annual returns over time. The U.S. stock market has an average annual return of 9.8% from 1928 to 2020. However, the returns over any given year have been anything but average over time. Investors in the U.S. stock market have been more than twice as likely to receive a gain of 20% or more in a calendar year than a gain in the 0 to 10% range. And more than 40% of the time, annual returns for the stock market have been gains of 20% or better or losses of 20% or worse. So it's all over the spectrum. You can have years where you're up 30%, down 15%, up 2%, and you can go on and on and on. But, you know, from 0 to 10%, returns from 0 to 10% since 1928 have only occurred 15% of the time. And the thing that sticks out to me is that almost 20% of the time, almost one-fifth of the time, returns have been 30% or better. So people just have to understand, you know, if you're a long-term investor, you don't need to worry about having one bad year. 
in my returns opinion. are going to be lumpy. It's not going to be a perfect eight percent consistently every year, nine percent consistently no, every it's year. Fool's it gold. doesn't work that way. It's fool's gold. Doesn't and work and obviously, way. you have to have some type of average, but it never comes with the context of you know most of the time it doesn't fall around that seven nine percent. Usually, it's outside of that. Absolutely. So, thought that was interesting. Uh, I'll turn it back to you for the financial planning topic of the week. We'll switch it up. Wouldn't you know the week that you have a cold, I selected to do the financial planning topic of the week. It's like you knew. I knew. (laughs) I know my business partner well. It's great. I need a break. Here we go. So listeners, I have a shorter topic this week, but a worthy one. So I saw an article on CNBC and the topic was why your checking and savings accounts should be at different banks. So the writer on this is um, is Nadine. She is a, a journalist for CNBC on the consumer team. And I'm going to uh, paraphrase. Uh, I, I apologize. I'm actually going to quote um, what she had. It'll take me about 60 to 90 seconds to read this. And then I would like your feedback, Mark. OK, mm-hmm. this is what she wrote. Quote, do you want to save more money? Try tricking yourself into it. One way to do that is by splitting your paycheck up between accounts at separate banks. So your checking account is at bank A while your savings account is at bank B. This trick works because it adds friction between you and your money. When all of your money is in one place, it could be tempting to spend it. But by hiding your savings away, you'll be less tempted to spend what you can't see. Start by creating a monthly budget that includes all of your essential expenses, such as rent, groceries, student loan payments. You should also give yourself a buffer for miscellaneous spending. Any leftover amount should be earmarked for savings. Next, open a bank account just for savings at a different bank than your checking. Finally, update your direct deposit so it puts a certain amount into each account each time you get paid. Your savings will be automatically taken out, leaving only the amount you budgeted to spend within reach. Alternatively, you can set up an automatic transfer to your new savings account each month. The important thing is to make sure you move money to savings before you spend it. Now, unless there's an emergency, forget about the second account. Let your savings grow. Mark? Yeah, I think I'm, you know, gold stars all around for this because this is exactly what I do. So I have I do my main banking with my checking at Chase and then I have a high yield online savings account at Marcus by Goldman Sachs. And the thinking is that, you know, that money is for emergencies only, right? And I don't even want to see it when I'm doing my basic spending and paying off credit cards and that type of thing. So each month, paycheck hits the the checking account automatically when it does, X amount goes into Marcus high yield. Um, When you move that certain dollar amount over, you can't touch it for like, I think it's like 30 days or something. So it makes it harder to pull it back into the account. And it's just another process that you have to go through to get to that money. So you have to go through, log in, transfer it back to your checking, probably could be two or three business days before it hits the checking. So psychologically, it's just harder to take money out of that account. And The only thing that I could add to this, I think, Matt, is to have people check out online savings accounts because you can just set it up right online. You don't have to go into a bank branch. It's super easy and it pays a little more than just having it at a savings account at, you know, Chase or Bank of America or Wells Fargo or one of the major banks. Now, it's not a lot, but it is better than what you're getting at one of the major banks. 
Um, and an example of this was just today, you know, I thought I had a, a plumbing issue that I needed to take care of and then found out that my sump pump wasn't working. So that's what that account is for. That's not for discretionary spending. And I'm glad that I've been saving into that account because I have money to pay for it. Um, so that's just an example of how that can be used. And eventually, after I get through another like six months or a year, I want to do a podcast on all of the expenses with coming comes with buying a new house. Ooh, this would be um, good. This would be good. I just like that. to see what actually goes into it, that it's not just the sticker price or what you're paying for your mortgage and your insurance um, and your taxes. It's a lot more than that, especially if you're not buying a newer house that needs to be upgraded. Um, I think that would be an interesting process to go through with people. I love this idea because the house that Rachel and I bought a couple of years ago was built in the very, very early 2000s. And if you think about the life cycle of, of things that are in the house, I'll start outside. All the landscaping, extremely mature. You're at the point where you pretty much got to start over again. Right. And landscaping is expensive, mm -hmm. right? You go inside, HVAC, usual life expectancy, 20 years. Yep. Boom, we're there. Yep. The refrigerator, 20 years. Boom, we're there. Like, yep. Go down the line, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we are creating like a sinking fund, like we're getting prepared. Okay, these things are coming up, you right. know, start saving and do it. Absolutely. So that's why, you know, it's, you know, I really, really like this idea of having, you know, a separate savings accounts that are earmarked for emergencies, or you can have one that's earmarked for saving for a wedding or saving for a house, you know, you can do name it, whatever you want, but it's easier to have those funds separated so that, you know, this is what this funds for. And my checking account is for discretionary spending and living expenses. Love it. And the last comment I'll make is through your employer listeners, you are able to set up multiple direct deposits. Um, not a specific plug, but an example is we use ADP payroll um, internally for our practice and we can set up multiple direct deposits and you can have a certain percentage go to savings or checking or dollar amount. So you know, keep that in mind. That's a good way to do it because you can just treat it as a deduction and you really don't, don't even see, see it. it. Right. There so, you go. Yeah. Great idea. Back to you, my friend. Um, I think we'll leave it there for the week. Anything else you want to add before we wrap it up? Uh, three weeks left in the third quarter. Companies tend to go real quiet with news the last two weeks of the quarter. It's typically part of their blackout period. Um, uh, after Labor Day, trading volumes tend to increase. So I think you're going to see more volatility intraday than you might have seen over the summer. Just a couple observations to help out the listeners. Yeah, sounds good. Well, thanks, everyone, for tuning in to episode 114 of the Independent Advisors podcast. We hope to see you all next week and hope you have a wonderful, safe weekend. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have
have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show, message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.